Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into the Word this morning. Uh, Last week, I was talking about faith, and uh, I want to continue in that vein. We want to look at this whole concept of faith. Uh, Let me pull up some notes here. I'm trying to buy myself time, but I'm a guy, so I can't multitask. If I was a woman, I could. I posted something online the other day, and it said, uh, it was this lady being interviewed for a job. And uh, the, the interviewer said, we, this is going to be, it's going it's to take the, the two men to pull off this job. And she said, oh, so it's part-time then. <laughs> and uh, so, and my computer doesn't want to cooperate, so I may have to read my notes off my phone. So let's do that. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us. And Lord, we're asking, God, that you would clarify things. Lord, that you would make the vision plain that we may run with it. Lord, we ask that you would correct our theology. Lord, we want to know you and we want to know your ways so that we can cooperate as you operate. Father, help us to realize that we can't do your job and you won't do ours. And so, Lord, as you do yours, help us to do ours and clarify the difference between the two. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we were last week. And I'm going to do a little review and just clarify some things. Last week we were talking about how there are two expressions of faith and two contexts in which these expressions will show up. And so there is a context in which there are situations, circumstances, in which we find ourselves that we need to express, express the one expression of faith, and then there are circumstances, scenarios, circ, uh, situations where the other expression of faith must be manifest in our life. And we will frustrate ourselves if we try to express the wrong expression in the other context. Now, here's, here's something that happens to us as humanoids. We have a tendency to want to polarize to one or the other expression. And we do that throughout uh, our, our faith walk with God. And so those two expressions could be framed this way. And they both show up in Hebrews chapter 11. And, and they show up, there's a progression here. The first half of Hebrews chapter 11, it says that uh, it begins to talk about faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it begins to enumerate the heroes of the faith. And it says things like, they shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flame. They routed armies by faith. It's an amazing thing. And those are, that's the expression you and I really like. Those are the books we want to read. We want to consume that. That's what I aspire to. I want to be the guy that routes armies. I'm a guy. I want to, I want to quench the, the flames. I want to uh, shut the mouths of lions. You know, that, all that good stuff. But right in the middle of that passage, 
the author shifts gears and he said, and there were others. Introducing the second context of faith and the, exec- the second expression of faith. And these were those who believed yet did not receive. And it gives us two, ex- two scenarios in which this happens. There are those who believed legitimate faith, a legitimate word from the Lord, and they exercised legitimate faith in latching on to the word of the Lord, yet they did not receive. Some were denied. God said no, and he withheld it so that there would be a further uh, breakthrough later on. Hopefully we'll get to that this morning and unpack that. There are others who refused their breakthrough. So the two expressions of faith are those who exercised faith and saw their breakthrough, saw great exploits of faith, And we need to contend for that. This is the one that revival culture emphasizes. The revival culture, the prophetic culture. This is this is the you know the whole word of faith movement contended for this. And the word of faith movement has gotten a bad rap because because of those who only adhere to this second context of faith will have a tendency to denigrate those who contend for this one. But before we get on their case, let's own this, that those of us who embrace this expression of faith have a tendency to denigrate this one. So there's those who contend for breakthrough and they see great exploits through faith. The power of God manifest. The kingdom of God come with great power. Those are, that's the glory stuff. But then there were others and this is the gory stuff, that though they believed, they did not receive. They were denied or they refused their deliverance. And it goes on to say, so that only together with us could they receive the fullness of their promise. And so it, it stretches us into, into this inner, this uh, multi-generational fulfillment of a promise so that there's a greater breakthrough But those who contended for it die not seeing it and still die in faith. And so this is a whole nother expression of faith. This one is the imposition of the kingdom upon the fallenness of this world. And we're to contend for that. This one is the surrender of faith and saying, God, I don't understand this mysterious situation I'm in. I have a promise. I'm standing on your word. I'm not seeing the breakthrough, but I still stand my ground and declare, you are good. So one is revolt against the fall. One is resignation to God's will. And these are not mutually exclusive, but one has to come to the forefront in given times and the other to the, uh, take the foreground. So when we are contending for healing and breakthrough and all these things, we have to exercise our faith. Whether we like it or not, Jesus reiterated this phrase numerous times, your faith has healed you. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You jump down to verse six. He says, for those who would draw near to him must believe, two things, that he exists, but he doesn't leave it there. 
Just believing that God exists is not saving faith. It's not achieving faith. It's not faith that's going to see the breakthrough. He adds another dimension to our faith. And that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We have to believe that God rewards faith. And to some of you, that, that kind of sets a little uncomfortable. That God is the rewarder of faith. In fact, you cannot read this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the faith chapter. You cannot read it without recognizing that God, that reward is central to the kingdom. It's foundational to the Christian life. This whole idea of reward, again and again throughout this passage, it'll talk about somebody who exercised their faith and it says they were commended for their faith or they received commendation. In other words, they were highlighted, they were, they were, they were promoted, they were commended, they were rewarded. Why? Because of the exercise of their faith. They stepped out, they put themselves out there to see God move. And God loves that and he rewards that because God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But God also loves those who in the midst of their believing and they're disappointed, they didn't see the breakthrough they expected and we must, let me just pause here, we must have this scenario, we must have room for this scenario to happen in our theology or we will become extremely disillusioned. There is a place for the unrealized promise. And we still stand in faith. And we've got to be careful that when that happens, on the one hand, we don't get disillusioned and check out and not exercise faith anymore. There are people who literally lose out on their relationship with God because the promise they were contending for wasn't realized. But there's an, another almost as dangerous tendency to begin to question any kind of breakthrough this side of heaven. And we embrace a lifestyle of resignation. And we simply just look at life as, I'm resigning myself to the circumstances of life. We talked about this last week, that those who adhere only to this, really their theology could be summed up with the phrase, God's will always happens, and everything that happens is God's will. I mentioned a book last week. I want to say it was, it was God at War by Greg Boyd. Uh, he's a theologian out of Minneapolis, got some great writing. And he, he juxtaposes these two views with the one view is uh, revolt against the fall. We, are exor- we, we look at, and the reason he wrote the book called God at War is he's presenting a, a, a theology that God is at war with the fallen world and he is out to overturn the effects of the fall. That is a very different theology than those who espouse the theology that say everything that happens in the world is God's will and God's will is always done. That is Calvinism and it says that God is orchestrating everything. We touched on this Wednesday night, but that view says that God governs directly and absolutely. Now both, both extremes, 
view God as sovereign, that God is in control. The question is, how does God exercise his control? Does he exercise it directly? And does he do it absolutely? So that everything that happens in your life has been orchestrated by God, and God's will is always done. If that's the view that you take, then the noblest thing that you could do is resign yourself to surrender to life as it shapes you into the image of his dear son. And there are plenty of scriptures that if you look at them alone could bring you to that conclusion. And it creates a posture of resignation and faith purely as surrender to circumstances so God can shape us. This other one, if that's if we just look at the secondary expression, the secondary context in Hebrews 11 to the negation of the first. You tracking with me? So the, uh, the alternative, and this is the danger of the revival culture, that we just buy into this and we say there's no room for that. There is a, a large segment of the charismatic revival culture that has no room for suffering in their theology. And it deeply, deeply concerns me because it will cause the falling away of many within the movement. They'll either abandon some of the valid truths within revival culture or abandon their faith altogether. And this is not an either or thing. We see both of them reflected in Hebrews 11. So there's a place to shut the mouths of lions and to stand in bold faith and see the kingdom of God come crashing in and circumstances turned around. And then there's a place in God when what we were standing for doesn't happen, we stand in faith believing even though we aren't receiving. And we resign ourselves to the mystery of who God is and his goodness and declare with our dying breath, God is good. And it's, catch this, this is the group of which it is said, of them the world is not worthy. Because they still die believing even though they weren't receiving. This context, this circumstance pulls us into that that subject that we've talked about over the last few months called the secret wisdom of God. The hidden wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it says, had the rulers of this dark age understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, God had a hidden wisdom in which he lured the enemy in. He baited the hook. The hook was the cross. Jesus was the bait. He threw it into the pond of this cosmos and drew the enemy in and the enemy swallowed Jesus and after three days, God set the hook and reeled him in. Heaven got indigestion. He swall- it swallowed something it should not have swallowed. But it was the hidden wisdom of God. It was God's strategy that appeared as though God was going to, that the plan of God was going to be thwarted, that God lost, that Jesus, the faithful ones, lost and hell won only for their greatest moment of victory to actually be the doorway to their greatest defeat. That was the hidden wisdom of God. That's how Paul frames it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And what we need to understand is that is not an isolated incident. God didn't just use that strategy once and then say, well, I used that, never going to use it again. The hidden wisdom of God is something that God uses throughout history and throughout our lives. But here's the catch. 
the hidden wisdom of God, the hidden strategy that is hidden to the enemy to lure him in is often hidden to us and we're the bait. The strategy that is hidden to the enemy is also hidden to us and it feels like we've been hung out to dry. And that's that stand of faith that says, God, I don't understand, but I have the bedrock of faith that's defined in this passage. I know you exist and you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. I know that you are going to reward me and commend me for taking this stand. I know that you are good. And I'm not going to get off of that ground. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I know the goodness of God. I know the integrity of your character. When you make a promise, you fill it. And either my interpretation or there's a greater fulfillment in store for me. But I'm not going to get off this ground. And we need an expression of both in our lives. We need the, the first expression where this is that, that whole thing of equipping the, the saints, uh, training believers to step out in faith and pray for the sake and words of knowledge and words of wisdom and prophetic words and all those supernatural elements of the Christian life that we love and we need to exercise. And it does take faith to do so. But we equally need this element of faith that says, when I'm not receiving what I'm believing for, I'm not going to blame God, and I'm not going to get off this ground. I'm going to keep contending, and I know that if I don't see it in my lifetime, there's something more going on here. And both of those are essential for us to embrace. Francis Schaeffer, in, in his, I want to say it's in his book, Art and the Bible. He's a brilliant guy. If you've never read anything by Francis Schaeffer, uh, you need to. Man, the guy was a brilliant thinker. But he had this, this framework that he presented. He talked about the Bible has a major theme and a minor theme. The major theme is resurrection, victory, uh, healing, breakthrough, all these great things. And then the minor theme is death, suffering, disappointment. And he said we have, to, we have to embrace both the major theme of Scripture and the minor theme. Because if we don't, we're not embracing the whole truth. And by ignoring one facet of the truth, we end up in a situation where it's not going to bode well for us. But then he went into how we need to keep the major theme the major theme and the minor theme the minor theme. Years ago I read a... a, a uh, it was a, a blog, I think it was, and I don't know who wrote it, but it was really good, and I, I'll, I'll never forget it. He talked about uh, error by emphasis. That was the title of this blog, error by emphasis, and he was talking about how we can enter into error not by saying the wrong thing, but saying it with the wrong emphasis, and that we can scream what God is whispering, or we can whisper what God is screaming. and we can end up in error because we're not emphasizing it at, with the intensity that God is emphasizing it. And that's really what Francis Schaeffer was talking about. That we need to understand there's the major theme and the minor theme. There is suffering, there is pain, there is disappointment, but there's victory and, and resurrection in this life. And this is the major theme of the kingdom. But there is a minor theme. And we cannot afford 
to neglect the minor theme, nor can we afford making the minor theme the major theme because it will lead us into error. And there is a tendency when we ignore this element of faith, break, this faith for breakthrough, to see God's power break in and turn situations around. When we fail to exercise this and we relegate ourselves to this second expression where we just were surrendered to what God wants to do, but we're not exercising our faith to see it happen. When our faith expresses itself merely in surrender to God's will, as opposed to mining out the principles of God's word and imposing God's will through our faith, when we do that, we inevitably make the minor theme the major theme. And then the major theme of Christianity becomes suffering and disappointment this side of heaven. And the most noble thing, and and some of you will recognize this present emphasis right now in segments of the church. And this is not to be critical. I'm not preaching. I'm just preaching against the belief. And a lot of people have come to that with sincere faith, but it's misplaced. And so what, what ends up happening is they, they look at it as the most noble thing we can do when, as we live in defeat is be transparent about our defeat. And so they think what, what it elevates this thing of being uh, genuine and uh, transparent, and the, the word authentic comes to mind, where people will use that term. I'm being authentic about my struggle, but I'm not contending for deliverance from it, because in my mind, the highest theological aspiration is being honest about where I'm struggling, because life is full of defeat and death. And we're not going to experience the victory till after we go to heaven. And some of you are aware of different writers that are emphasizing it. And the fact is, it's, they're, they're largely the younger writers. And that's not a knock on them. It's probably more a knock on us because I'm not one of those younger people anymore. I, Caitlin and I were driving down the road yesterday and I, I caught my head in the mirror and I told her, I said, I still, it shocks me when I see myself in the mirror. Because I feel young. And then I see, who's that gray-haired dude? Oh, that's me. And I'm afraid that we gray-haired dudes have failed the emerging generation. That we've got to hold the line. The major theme of this thing is resurrection. The norm of Christianity is the first part of Hebrews 11. But there are circumstances and seasons in our life where we enter into that secondary expression. And I would argue there are circumstances and season within the redemptive history where deeply entrenched evil demand that God raise up people that can embrace this expression of faith and still stand. What I mean by that is I believe that we are coming into a season where it's going to take more and more people that will stand in faith over here, but when they don't see it break loose, they will still take that stand and embrace the mystery of who he is. We, if we don't have room in our theology for mystery, we are setting ourselves up for disillusionment and the reduction of the faith. And so we've got to hold tight to both of these. I'm not talking about letting go of the miraculous, but I'm talking about not also not letting go of your faith when you don't see it move. Yeah. 
So let's look in Hebrews chapter 11 towards the end there, and then I'm going to land this in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. The thing about a computer is you can't just turn the page back easily because it wants to do other things. There we go. All right. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So it goes on, verse 4, God commended Abel. Uh, In verse 5, God commended Enoch. And then in verse 6 it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. So you need to understand that there is this, this commodity of heaven. There is this heart posture without which it is impossible to please God. What is the one thing that is required of God? When we were eating last night after the, the service in Kansas City, there was a young gal introduced herself as Faith. And I told her, you know, I said, without Faith, it is impossible to please God. And so the, her friend said, yeah, you're essential. So I, was, I made sure as I told her, I said, remember, you're essential. Without Faith, is an impo- it is impossible to please God. So we need to understand what this thing f- called Faith is. If you have set your life to pleasing heaven, understand it's impossible without this thing called faith. And he gives us a definition here. It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You've got to have this conviction. God is the rewarder. Anybody ever read this book, Desiring God by John Piper? Anybody ever read that? Wave your hand at me. Listen to the subtitle, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Now you know a hedonist is someone that lives for their own pleasure. That's their, their highest goal is to just please, to, to live for pleasure. Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. It's a great book. It really, I wish I'd have had this book 30 years ago, 40 years, 32 or 38 years ago when I first started following Jesus, it would have really helped me. He quotes one of the ancient creeds, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he goes on to state that we need to adjust that creed, that that creed in and of itself creates a problem. He said it needs to be read like this, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That our chief responsibility is to enjoy God. And he gets into, he touches on something that I was so relieved because I thought, well, it must not be that rare because I thought I'm just weird. I struggled with this theology. As a matter of fact, I had friends that really taught me this, that if I enjoy worship, somehow I've defiled it. Anybody ever had that thought? Okay, I'm the only one, me and John Piper. I really, I was taught that, that if we enjoyed worship, somehow we defiled it. And so we would talk things like, well, you're just worshiping worship. Because you, you know, it's like, oh, it, the music is so important to you. You just like to listen, you just, you want to enjoy it. As if it's noble that I really just grit my teeth and bear it. You know, oh, another worship service. God, I love you. <laughs> 
oh, it's done. Glory to God. Now try taking that philosophy and apply it to marriage. Yeah. That the greatest expression of love for my wife is letting her know that I loathe to spend time with her, but I do it because I love her. (laughs) That it's a real burden to be with her, but my deep affection for her means that I'll do it anyway. Yeah, good luck on that one. He goes on to say that your enjoyment of worship in and of itself is an expression of worship because of who he is. And so the fact that we enjoy pouring our love out upon him is in and of itself worship. And of course we see that with our spouse. If my wife knows, I just really like to spend time with her, even if we're just doing something boring. My wife and I, by the way, are very boring. You know what, you know what our dates, uh, what we do for a date is we go to Costco. And after we're done, we go and get some of that yogurt. And my wife's a cheap date, and that, that's all she wants. We'll go get one of those yogurt, we'll sit in the car. That's so romantic to us, you know. It's like... We'll get, it, we'll get some deals and then go eat that. And it's been really hard lately because their yogurt machine has been down. But it's, it's been, so pray for us. We're going into counseling until the yogurt machine is fixed. But we recognize that with our spouse, that when we're, we want to hang out with our spouse, that in and of itself, that, that makes them feel loved. It's like, oh, wow, they want to be with me. Even when we're doing boring stuff. Just want him to hang out with us. Sometimes I'll be working on something. I'll say, Kath, just come, you know, just be with me. It, I, I want that it, it, for her to be with me because that's an expression of my love. It's the same thing with God. And he gets into, he quotes C.S. Lewis. I believe it was out of his, his book, The Weight of Glory. And he talks about how we, have, we believe this lie that man's problem is that he pursues his desires too much. And he goes on, he, he says, if you look at the Gospels, when the Bible tells us to deny ourselves, immediately following that call to self-denial is the promise of extravagant reward. And God is actually appealing to desire within us for pleasure. God hardwired us for that. In fact, he promises us In his presence is joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is to motivate us. And so C.S. Lewis goes on to say that man's problem is not pursuing his desire too strongly. It's that he is too weak in his pursuit of his desires. That we shoot too low. That we're willing to settle for sex, drugs, and rock and roll when infinite pleasure at his right hand awaits us. That the real pleasure is in his presence. And we settle for too little. We're willing to be satisfied with some counterfeit pleasure of sin when what we need to do is not deny our desire but unleash it and demand the real thing which is only found in him. And he put that desire in us to attract us to himself. And he reveals himself as the answer to our every desire. In fact, so much so, he's called the desire of the nations. And so we need to understand that 
this thing within us that God placed, this desire to unleash, we're to unleash it on him. And this thing that, this hunger to be fulfilled and find meaning in life is only found in him. And we're not called to kill that thing and kill desire and be passionate people as, as if that's some wonderful expression of our commitment to him. God wants us to be passionate and unleash our desires on him, realizing that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And this whole concept of reward is a cornerstone of the kingdom. If you look at Jesus' parables again and again, he talks about reward. The man who sells it all to buy the field with the buried treasure, or the pearl of great price, or the one who the master comes and gives them a talent and leaves, and they're to multiply it, and the whole goal is that when he returns, he'll say to them, well done, and multiply what he gave them in the first place. It's increase and reward, and he's hardwired us to want to hear that from him and receive that from him. And it all comes by faith. And if we kill that out of some mis, you know, that some misappropriated understanding of Christianity, we become passionless. God wants us to unleash our passion on him. And to understand that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And we are to contend for the break into the kingdom. And that is our commendation and our reward as God answers those. We're partnering with him to see the break in of his kingdom. And when we find ourselves in these circumstances where there's not the breakthrough and we're disappointed, we need to understand that we come into a, a crucial time. And if we pass that test, we'll be among those of whom the world is not worthy. And there's a secret wisdom. There's something going on there that we need to understand. So let's look at it real quick and then I'll land it. You're saying, Pastor, you just said you were going to land it a minute ago. Okay, look, look, uh, look at verse, let, look at verse 35 so we can tie in the, the, that first expression. Uh, women receive back their dead by resurrection. And then it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So up until verse 35, it's talking about all these heroes and all these great breakthroughs. And these are the glory things. These are the ones we want to talk about. This is what we aspire to, and rightly so. That is your assignment Go out and release the kingdom. Um, that the kingdom is not a matter of words. It's a matter of power. See the fall and its, its consequences overturned in this life. But understand, there are times where we enter into the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured. Or the NIV says, and there were others. I believe the King James Version says that as well. And there were others refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goat, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended, again, they're commended by God for their faith. So it wasn't presumption. It wasn't that they, they thought they were exercising faith and they extended themselves on, uh, on some you know, misled idea of that this was a promise and they missed it. It wasn't that they received a prophetic word that wasn't true and they missed it. It was a real promise and real faith, and they were commended for holding to it, but they did not receive what was promised since God providing something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, I need the grace of God right now to communicate this. What I'm saying is this, that there is a place in God where the promise is so big it can't be stuffed into the span of one life, okay? The purposes of God that he has led you into contend for, those purposes are too grand for you to see the completion, the fulfillment in your lifetime. And so like somebody who has invested in the stock market and their, their investment brought back a great return and they're like, man, I'm gonna cash out. This is awesome. This is my reward for my investment. But they hear the whisper of their investment broker, let it ride, roll it over because there will be a greater return. And it's like somebody at the end of their life saying, all these investments I could cash out, but I'm gonna let it ride, I'm gonna let it roll over, and it's gonna be my kids and the next generation that's gonna receive the great benefit. That's what it's talking about. There's a place in God where we only, we only in, uh, take part in a portion of the fulfillment of what we're contending for. And it's a real promise. And I would, I would propose to you that when it says that Jesus conquered death, that one expression of death that you and I need to get a vision for being conquered, we need to understand that Jesus conquered death in this regard. We still have this idea that if I don't see it before I breathe my last, it wasn't valid. But Jesus conquered death. And so death is this illusory barrier. It's not real. Scripture says you and I already live in the age to come. And so what we need to understand is our life, our ministry, and our investment continues after we've breathed our last. Because we just transitioned into the next life and we're still contending for that breakthrough. And so it's not that we didn't receive it at all. It's we're only going to receive it on the other side when the ones that come behind us enter into this thing. And we have got to understand this. Because if our only vision for the fulfillment of our faith is I have to experience it myself, I've got to see it, or I must have missed it. You are gonna miss a dimension of the promises of the kingdom that, is, that makes you part of those of whom the world is not worthy. I hope I'm making sense this morning. We need to understand that there are, God will lead you into a dimension in the kingdom where you will never see the fulfillment of what is said. Earlier on in this passage, it talks of Abraham and Sarah. And it says 
They, they, gave, they, they ended up having Isaac, and then it says, and they died not having received the promise. And it caused me to pause. I thought, what do you mean they died not receiving the promise? They saw Isaac. That was the promise. So obvious, obviously he was talking about a greater promise. What was he talking about? He was talking about children as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Abraham died believing. That promise was too big to be crammed into his short little lifespan, even though he lived a lot longer than we do. This thing was too big to be crammed into that little container. But Abraham fulfilled his role. And what God is looking for are people that will believe for the break-in of the kingdom. But even when they're not seeing it, the expression of it in their lifetime, we still stand understanding that we're joining arms with those who are coming after us. And some of the things we're contending for, it's going to be our kids who are going to enjoy it. We make the investment, they cash out later. But it's going to grow. There's an increase in the passing. And if we don't have a vision for this, we set ourselves up for disillusionment. Or at best, just a temporary impact of our faith. Because this, it's this level of faith that really has that multi-generational impact. So, we're going to begin to baptize some people. So if you guys would get ready, whoever, the, uh, Roger and Jim, if you guys would get that taken care of, so I'm going to land this. So here's the thing. We need both expressions in our life. We need to believe for the break-in of the power of God. We, we are never to let go of this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't stop working in miraculous ways. The kingdom itself is a matter of power. And if we're in the kingdom, there is the release of the power of God. And we need to contend for this and see an increase in our own personal lives, corporately and personally. But we also need to embrace this other element. That there is suffering and disappointment. But we lift the veil of death and we realize that we're, we already live in the power of the age to come. Scripture says that we already have entered eternal life. So much so that First John said, he who believes in him, in Jesus, will never die, but live forever. And your ministry and your investment will continue up there. You know there's prayer meetings going on in heaven? I would argue the greatest prayer meeting in all of history is going on around the throne right now. Book of Revelation is clear. There are those who are under the throne crying out, how long, Lord, how long? They're contending for the return of Jesus in heaven. You and I have stepped into our eternal ministry now, and we need to get a vision for it because it will deliver you from a lot of confusion and heartache. Amen? Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.